he's trying to dispel to some degree the idea of the creative genius. That's it, it seems it seems to be the the general premise of the entire book. And so he's trying to rebrand creativity as being someone who's just simply born with it. Yeah. He or she was born with it. Um to to more of a uh, uh, what, what is known as the inverted U-shaped relationship between familiarity and preference, or as he simplified and probably from his marketing back pocket called the creative curve. And so, so what is the creative curve? Yeah, and so there, there was a couple of breadcrumbs in that in the 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 psychology definition, uh, which I read out, but basically it is literally the, the relationship between human taste and preference. And, and so okay. basically think of it, think of like an X axis, the horizontal axis as being this, like the spectrum of human taste. And then think about preference as being, um, how preferential it is by people. And so you can just think about like a bell-shaped curve sitting on that. So obviously in the center somewhere, which is, you know, not at either end of the spectrum in terms of familiarity, um, sorry, in terms of taste, um, that's where you've got the most preference. If yep. that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's uh, the, the graphs, the, the highest at that point. Yeah, and then so it, it, it tails off at both ends, either side of that, um, much like a bell. That's why it's called the bell curve. Um, <laughs> fun fact. Thank you. Uh, and so Informative and fun. Yeah. <laughs> you just got to love a practical name, don't you? <laughs> we, need, we need a name for this new concept we've come up with today. Well, it looks like a bell. What's it's called that? the bell curve. Yeah. I think you invented it, right? Yeah. No one else would have thought of that. Um, so the idea is that, you know, we like novelty and the the horizontal axis, like the human taste, where that kind of sits, where the spectrum sits there, um, or certainly where the center point is sitting, certainly shifts over time. Um, and so this is, it's, it's a very dynamic, moving graph and what it's also premised on is a ringing know, we, bell do we like that or we don't like that said the bell might be ringing you know it's moving <laughs> see what i did there thanks for the collaboration lucky sorry i'm just derailing you here you're in the middle of something so well well okay so here we go so let's let's go with that so the bell, the bell is struck, you know, the little, the little ball hanging in the center hits the side um, and it's hit, you know, it's struck a chord or something. So we could consider that as, you know, maybe something novel as, as struck a chord with the, with the community and we consider that maybe a breakthrough technology or something um, or a new, new thing. But the fact is it's still within the bell, you know, yep. it's still contained within the bell. And the point of this is that, uh, there's not much new. There's not many new things getting around. Everything's been done. And it's just about um, how we can resurface things or how we can relook at things in slightly different ways. Um, you know, there's the common, common quote, which is, you know, there are no new ideas. 
if you you know if you kind of look far and wide enough and back further enough you you probably won't find much new so essentially what he's getting at is there's there's some there's a balance between novelty and familiarity yeah it's it seems to be that he's kind of talking about this tension between we want things that are familiar to us because they're kind of safe and they're a known quantity but we also like the new because it's exciting and the most the most successful creative ideas flirt the boundary of those two perfectly where it's just new enough but it's not so new that it's a completely crazy thing that we've never seen before but it's new enough that we understand it but it's exciting yeah it's a sweet spot there's like this there's this sweet harmony that that's formed between what's kind of what's the current paradigm and then what's what's just outside of that that's still within the within the uh the taste zone of enough people to get behind you. So example was that he, or a few examples that he laid out in the book were Harry Potter, which is just the typical orphan rising story, you know, the orphan breaking out of their, their original life. Um, you know, the iPhone was just the iPod plus a phone. <laughs> uh, and Star Wars, which is a Western set in space. So he's really trying to trying to make a point here and and all those all those to me resonate but but you look at fashion as well mate you know and and music and taste and all those type of things they they very much fit in that space. Jeez, the, the only knock I've got on this is that it feels a little contrived like you try to hack the creative process a little. Yeah. You know like and he talks a lot about pop music, that it's formulaic and that's like how that succeeds. Yeah, but it's hollow, a lot of that, and a lot of it doesn't last. So to me, I understand what he's saying, but I also, you don't want to take the creativity out of creativity, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, and I think we'll, we'll, probably, we'll probably get to this a little bit later on, mate, but... I think what happens is as people, you know, become more more genius in their craft, as they gradually become more masterful of what they're doing, um, if they have a genuine curiosity and interest in what they're doing, they tend to just explore a little bit and they're exploring on a completely different level to everyone else, which is, you know, case in point, the Beatles or case in point, you know, well, Paul McCartney, which he actually talks about as well, specifically in the, in the book. Um, and I think it's that exploration then that really kind of, that, that the people who are perceiving it, you know, the public or the fans, the audience, they are the ones that then go, wow, this is, this is incredible. This is creative genius. Whereas for the creator, they're just exploring. They're just down, but they're just down in the depths that other people can't see. Mm. So that's a that's quite a. I did I did mention. Hmm? I think that yeah, and this is where the 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 four laws of creativity that he talks about probably resonated most with me, as opposed to the curve itself. Yeah, Um, I did want to just quickly touch on. 
getting into that, that we, we did mention like the lack of creative genius and, and that he's trying to emphasize that creative genius isn't just because people are genius. He, you know, Paul McCartney was known to have like, you know, dreamt up yesterday, you know, just one night dreamt it up. Whereas what actually happened is he, there was a couple of notes that he woke up, remembers waking up one day and then he, he couldn't get this, these notes out of his head and he ended up, um, ended up, I think he has six notes and then he ended up spending 20 months doing nothing but playing and toying with those six, those six notes or this melody of six notes. Um, even, even including when the rest of the Beatles were touring and he was, he was, he wouldn't even go on tours and he would just focus on these six notes. Um, and the lyrics, yeah. And the lyrics, the lyrics weren't something that, that, um, uh, that came into the song until right at the very end. So he basically spent, you know, 20 months solely focused on tweaking these six notes that he'd dreamt up. God. Must have driven him nuts. Yeah. But that's, that's, you know, that's, there's something in that. That gives you an indication. And well, that launches us into the four laws, I reckon. Spot on. Nice little segue. Yeah. You've led me in. Uh, So here's where he talks about, I guess, these four laws of creativity. And he says, the methods these creators have learned to master the creative curve are what I call the laws of the creative curve or the laws of creativity. In the course of the book, I will outline and explain the four laws and they are the law of consumption, the law of imitation, the law of creative communities and the law of iterations. And so each of those are are basically the themes that he saw across all the different people that he interviewed and looked into. And they're kind of simple, but they make a lot of sense when you go through them. And it's uh, it's quite an eye-opening, simple kind of way to look at the process of creativity in many ways. Mm. So tell maybe tell us about them, Lockie, and then I've got a few questions for you. Quiz at the end, is it? Yeah, it's a post quiz, post section <laughs> quiz that you don't know about. <laughs> awesome. All right, I'm sure I'm, 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 sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll forget the questions throughout the hour section. Should I anyway. take? Should I take notes? Uh, so, law one: consumption. So, this is where he talks about you. All the artists that are really successful are also kind of fans. They're fans of what they do. So they, if they're musicians, they listen to heaps of music across broad amount of genres and are obsessed by different uh, artists and, you know, have massive record collections and spend all their time listening to music. Or if you're a writer, you read, you know. And so the law of consumption is about consuming so much work that you start to get a feel for what is on the edge of the cur- of that curve and where the edge is and what areas other artists are exploring as well. And so basically he he sort of means by that be a fan, you know, and submerge yeah. submerse yourself in the world. 
And as a rule, he says that you should spend 25% of your time consuming creative pieces from others um, out of your, your available time budget. Yeah, which works out to be like, you know, three to four hours per day, really. Something of that. It's a lot. It's a when lot of think hours. think of it like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, you, do, you, do you think you spend like three to four hours on any venture or any creative venture in a particular day or any field, one field? Well, I guess I have a job, so... <laughs> I'd do that. Hey, um, but are you, are you consuming though, you know? So I think there's there's one thing about, you know, yes, having a job, but um, if you're, you know, if you're doing emails or if you're, um, you know, doing processes and things that you've done in the past or winning jobs or whatever it happens to be, that's different from actually, you know, reading the cutting edge or, trying to understand and see what others are doing in the space. Yeah, I would say most people don't do that and I probably don't either. I do do a lot of reading about business um, and listening to podcasts about it and kind of immersing myself that way in those sort of things. So I would say I do do it but certainly not 20% of my time is spent doing that, not not even close. Um but I am a voracious reader of like those kind of nonfiction books as we know from this podcast. So um, I do do a bit but not as much as I reckon he recommends. Yeah. What about a, yourself? It's a tough ask, mate. Well, I don't know. Like I think when you maybe add up the reading throughout the week, particularly, if, again, for this podcast, um, I think that, you probably do get to that because some, you know, particularly on some weekends and things, you, you, you do more than that just because you you need to play catch up. But there's certainly days that you don't do anything because you just bug it at the end of the day mm. or or whatever's going on. So, um, but he, he he brings up a really good example in the book of um, Ted Sarandos, um, and he speaks about how when he was uh, his upbringing was in a very kind of disjointed household, uh, a very, um, you know, it was a bit of a rough upbringing. There was always domestic, domestic, um, I'm not sure of domestic violence, but there was always disputes and things uh, in the house. And so movies and television became the ultimate escape for him from his own chaotic household. Um, what ended up happening is he, you know, that became a safe space. There was a video store that opened up near his house. He ended up getting a job there, part-time job there because he was in there so much and talking to the owner so much. He ended up um, watch. He made a commitment to himself that he was going to watch every single movie in the store and just think about it, you know? So the, like there's a, there's a weird dedication here, but it's almost like a, this emotional bind for him. And the, so what ends up happening is, you know, he ends up progressing beyond that video store, you know, running the video store. And then, you know, shortly after, there's a few other things in between, but shortly after he is then asked um, to come on as the content manager or head of content for, you guessed it, Netflix. 
So this is the guy that's making all the content decisions in Netflix. So I'd suggest wow. he's done pretty damn, pretty damn well. It's super interesting because Quentin Tarantino worked in a video store as well. Hmm. <laughs> and you can see his knowledge of uh, films just littered throughout his movies. So there's a theme there. Oh, definitely, mate. Well, the the funny thing is with um with Ted, he actually when he was obviously still working at the movie store, he was like a recommendation machine for all of his friends and, and <laughs> anyone that came up and asked him. And he he says it's it's quite interesting how his life, he, what he does hasn't changed except now that instead of um you know recommending it to people directly, he's actually just helping helping, you know, the developers build out technology to help with recommendations towards people. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs>